0: Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word to us.
1: All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. It's great to be with you this morning. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. And uh, man, I love gathering with you on Sundays. Uh, if you're here today and you are dragged along by a friend or a family member, uh, if you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with any of this stuff, if you have real questions about Christianity, about the church, about Jesus, Welcome to you. We are really glad that you're here. I wanna say to you, man, we really do believe that Jesus offers the most compelling, logical, beautiful, real way to live, uh, both now and forever. We actually think that he has good news to offer even the things that feel hard or seem confusing or like a turnoff to you, we actually think there's good news there. So we would love for you just to ask good questions while you're with us, show up on Sundays, gather in our community groups. You do not have to believe what we believe to be a part of this community, but we, we want you to really not check your brain in at the door or check your heart in at the door, your questions in. All of that is stuff that we'd love to love to process with you. So let us buy you coffee. We'd love to get with you throughout the week and talk about that. Thanks for being with us. Hey, I am so excited about today because today we kick off our series in 1 Corinthians. This is going to be so much fun. This book is wild. It's crazy. Uh, our teaching team has spent a lot of time studying and prepping and getting ready for this. And many times throughout reading this letter, we've looked at each other as uh, other pastors that are preaching in our frontline congregations. And we have thought. Why are we doing this again? <laughs> are you sure there's not a, a, a better book of the Bible for this moment? Because there's some stuff in here that's really hard, some stuff that's really complicated, some stuff that really is culturally timely but offensive. We're going to get to all of it. So uh, that's, that's where we're headed. And I personally love just going book, or verse by verse through books of the Bible. It's my favorite and our favorite way to teach as a church. So a couple of things that I want you to consider as you're jumping in with this over the next few weeks and months Man, the first is read this book. Read 1 Corinthians. You need to make sure that what we're saying is actually right. And the only way to know if it's right is for you to not just hear me talk on a Sunday, but for you to read and study this letter. Uh, It's 16 chapters long. It'll take you about an hour or maybe a little less if you're a fast reader. And there's a lot of value in just reading all the way through. I really recommend just sitting down on one sitting and read all the way through this letter because otherwise you're gonna get fragmented pieces. It's hard to really put it together. So read it, it'll take you about an hour. It's well with your time. Don't just read it once, read it many times throughout the next few weeks and months. Uh, if you're a nerd like me and you prefer commentaries in addition to your regular study, I wanna recommend, if you only have enough money to buy one, buy this one by Andrew Wilson. He's one of my favorite thinkers and theological that 's alive today he 's from the uk uh, he 's a pastor of a great church in in London and this is a great commentary it 's really accessible it doesn't take a lot of time to read. He covers a lot of ground in a short amount of time, so it 's more of a flyover commentary. great stuff in this book. If you are like super nerd and want to go deep and spend like forty five dollars on a book that is really, really good but really dense. I really recommend this one, The First Epistle to the Corinthians by Gordon Fee. Dr. Gordon Fee is one of the few charismatics that is writing like profoundly good doctrine and theology and commentaries. And I love that. Like, we're gonna get into the gifts of the Holy Spirit in chapter 12 through 14 sometime next year. But this man is brilliant, he is incredibly intelligent. And his commentary on 1 Corinthians is widely considered not just the best commentary on 1 Corinthians, but one of the best commentaries ever written on any book of the Bible. It's really good. I highly recommend it. It's almost 1,000 pages of nerdum, and you're going to love it if you're like me. So grab those two books. If you wanna, If you want more resources, you can do two things. You can go to our website. We've got a resources page that has some other options there for you to check out. And then there's more. There's like four or five other resources that are not listed here that I could email you if you really wanna nerd out and go deep. The reason why I'm saying that is because this is a 10-month series for us. This isn't like we're gonna just jump in and be done in a month and a half. Like 10 months long, 40 weeks in this book. So I'm just calling on you as the church of God, study this with me, okay? I'm not like the guy that gets paid to study and then just tell you, like, study with me. We're gonna do this together. It's gonna be really fun. Hopefully, maybe offensive. Maybe it'll bother you. Maybe you'll leave the church because you're frustrated. All of that's an option. It's all on the table. But at least we're gonna give it our best. Sound good? Okay. Well, three of you are so stoked about that. Uh, let me pray for us. If you have a Bible, turn to First Corinthians while I'm praying. Jesus, thank you for this letter. Thank you that even though it was written so long ago, it's so profoundly helpful. It's so timely. It's it's speaking to us today. And would you do that? Would you speak to us today? I, I do not assume that I have anything profound or helpful to say today. Would you speak to us? Would you minister to us? Would you meet with my friends that have questions, that need clarity, that need to meet with you, that need to encounter your grace, encounter your presence? I pray, as I pray every week for this church, would you shape us more and more into the image of Jesus and less and less into the image of our world? We wanna be people of the kingdom, so help us, meet us in Jesus' name, amen. It would not be hyperbole or an exaggeration for me to say, and I've, I've been known to give myself to hyperbolic language, it would not be hyperbole for me to say that this letter is not just one of the most important books in the New Testament, but arguably it is one of the most important books in all of the canon of scripture. When I say canon, I'm talking about Genesis to Revelation, every book that you have in your Bible. This book is literally one of the most important. It's not like the human gallbladder. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, you can get your gallbladder removed and live a normal life and be fine. This is more like a vital organ that if you cut this out, you miss out on a ton of stuff that otherwise we would not have. Let me just give you a few examples that this gives us definitive treatments on that really we wouldn't have in great detail outside of this letter. It talks in great detail about sex, about singleness, about marriage, about divorce, about church discipline, about church leadership. It talks in great detail about the Holy Spirit. In fact, it has the greatest treatment on spiritual gifts in the entire Bible. It has a ton to say about the resurrection of Jesus. One of, well not even one of, the most profound statement on the resurrection is in this letter. If you took this letter out, there'd be question marks surrounding the resurrection of Jesus, not whether or not it happened, but what the implications of that event would be for you and I today. It talks a lot about the Lord's Supper, how to do church, what Sunday gatherings would look like. I don't know if we would know anything of what to do when we gather on Sundays if you didn't have this letter. It's incredibly important. And the irony of this letter is that it's dealing with something that was happening 2,000 years ago in another part of the world in a very different culture that's almost entirely unfamiliar to you and me today in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And yet the issues and the questions and the things that Paul is addressing with this church in Corinth are some of the most profoundly struggled with issues of our own day today. day. 2,000 years later, it's prophetically speaking into your life and into my life and into our culture. How? It's crazy. It's almost like this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit or something, right? This letter is incredible. But as with any book of the Bible, before we can grapple with verse one and start working our way through, we have to wrestle with what did this letter mean to them? Because it can't mean something to us, that it never meant to them in their context. In other words, we have to recognize that we're not the first recipients of this letter. This letter was written for us, but before it was written for us, it was written to the Corinthians. And it had very specific reasons why it was written to this church and this place, and it says the things that it says to them. And we gotta get that, get their world, get their culture, put their lens on so that we can understand what it actually might mean for you and I today, 2,000 years later, sitting in Oklahoma City? What does it mean for us? So let me just briefly give you four things. And I, I, I know that some of you are going to want to check out, and maybe that's fine. Just check out if you can't handle it anymore. But let me just go homeschool on you for just a few minutes and get a little bit nerdy. But I need you to get this context so that you can immerse yourself into the life of Corinth. Four things to look at. The history, the culture, the church, and then the letter. And then I promise we'll get to verse one. Okay, I promise we will get there eventually. So first, the history. Uh, Originally, Corinth was a thriving Greek city-state. It was one of the most important cities in the ancient world. But as with any major city that was not Roman, it came in conflict with the Roman Empire. In the second century, uh, the Romans moved in and they completely destroyed the city of Corinth in 146 BC. They leveled it to the ground. And the destruction that the Roman Empire did on Corinth was so pervasive, so big, that it sat empty, desolate for about 100 years. Literally like completely empty. No one dared to go near that area for 100 years. Years And then in 44 BC, a well-known man by the name of Julius Caesar rebuilt the city and he did a few things with it. He was building the city as a Greco-Roman city. So it was a, a Roman colony that he, he, he populated it with freedmen. These are people who either were at one time slaves that bought their freedom or people that were free but not like high up on the social ladder. So freedmen moved into the town and then also retired military from the Roman armies, were invited to live here and given land in Corinth to live there. So it's basically like, how do we get some of the grungy people that we don't want in our city... How do we move them out of our city, but then make them think that it's like a positive thing? Well, let's give them free land in Corinth. So that's what they did. So Corinth is sort of grungy. It's sort of like rough, and you go there to make a name for yourself. It's kind of like the Wild West. And because of where it was located at the time, and and I want to like nerd out all about this, but we don't have time. Geographically, it was located in a place where if you were going to do any sort of import or export whatsoever, almost all of that was going to flow through the city of Corinth. It was incredibly strategic. So quickly after Julius Caesar established this city in 44 BC, it becomes one of the most influential, important port cities in the entire ancient world and eventually becomes the wealthiest Greek city that existed. So that's the history. Now that leads me to the culture of the city of Corinth. Because of the people that moved there, because of the wealth Because of the influence and the strategic location, it brought in all kinds of people. You had some people that would travel to Corinth as tradesmen or women who wanted to make a name for themselves and get wealthy, and they could do that in Corinth. You had other people that would travel to Corinth because it was beautiful and they would go there just as a tourist. You had other people that would travel there because they heard that there's a better life there. Some some heard that the city was thriving and growing, and it was a lot of fun to go there. So this city was a really unique city that had a, a magnetic pull, if you will, for a lot of people all over the known world. It was the home to it was home to the second greatest sporting event that existed in the ancient world, second only to the Olympics. So people would travel there every couple of years for these games and these sporting events that they were really, really famous for. But in addition to that, it wasn't just well-known for its wealth. It wasn't just well-known for its sporting events. It was also really, really well-known for its sexual nature as a city. Like this was a place that you would go if you wanted to have really wild, really outrageous sexual experiences. In fact, there is an ancient writer who coined a phrase after his time in Corinth. He spent some time there. He coined a phrase called Corinthiazo. Corinthiazo, it literally meant to act like a Corinthian. And what he meant by that, Corinthiazo, was to engage in sexually promiscuous behavior. So imagine if somebody's like engaging in sexually promiscuous behavior, you go, oh, that person's a Corinthiazo. Because corinthians the, the Corinthian culture was so well known for its sex. But in addition to the sex and the wealth and the tourism, it was also known, which is unique, for its Spirituality. We often think of those two things being very separate. You're either going to be a spiritual person or a really sexually promiscuous person. But Corinth brought those two things together. And often what was happening is in these pagan temples, and there were a lot of them. One ancient geographer says that there were at least 26 Uh, sacred spaces or places in Corinth. Many temples, uh, some devoted to the goddess Epaphrodite. And what would happen is these pagan rituals would happen where they would gather in the temples or in these sacred places and they would have orgies and they would eat these ornate feasts to the gods. And everything that you might think of as Greco-Roman culture and its sexually explicit behavior was all true and even worse. It would almost make you blush today in our context. That's what this city is like. Lots of money, lots of sex, lots of wealth, and lots of spirituality. Uh, Gordon Fee, in his, as I've already mentioned, phenomenal commentary, he says that the city of Corinth was, quote, the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So kind of paint that picture in your mind, and that leads me to the third thing that I want you to see, which is the church. With that culture in mind, imagine that this is the place where the church of Jesus Christ was born. This was the place where the church of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the apostle Paul launched. So Acts 18 Paul or uh, yeah Acts 18 Paul is doing a missionary journey which he'd been known to do traveling from one place to the other. He lands in Corinth and here's what Paul would love to do. He would go to the synagogue because he was a Jewish uh, person who is an expert in Jewish law. He would go to the synagogue and try to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So he lands in Corinth, he's in the synagogue, he's reasoning with them. They get very offended. They start to push back and they even threaten his life. So Paul is like, I think I'm gonna leave. The city of Corinth is not a safe place for me. So he's about to leave. But then in Acts 18, verse nine, we read this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Now notice this line, for I have many people in the city who are my people. I love that line. That line is really important. And you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, need to grab a hold of this. It doesn't matter how dark our culture gets. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional the world around us seems. It doesn't matter how far it seems that God could possibly be from moving in this place. God always has people that belong to him in this city. They just don't know it yet. There are people right now that are waking up, that are going about their day, that are gonna do their normal American weekend thing, that are currently living lives opposed to Jesus, wanting nothing to do with him. And yet friends, here's the crazy thing. They belong to him. It, they're on the clock. It's only a matter of time. They just don't know it yet, that God has set his loving sight on them and he's gonna move on their life. This is a powerful verse and it's why Paul stays in the city. In fact, he stays in the city over a year and a half. We know for a, for, from Acts for a fact, he stays at least one year and six months, but probably longer. And then eventually, the church is born. Uh, tons of Gentiles come to know Jesus, even some influential Jews in the city. One man by the name of Sosthenes, we're gonna read his name in just a minute. He shows up, and there's all these like, people that are coming to know Jesus from Gentile culture and Jewish culture, people that lived in Corinth coming to know Jesus and learning a different way of life. And that leads me to the letter. That we have in front of us that we call 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians was written in the spring of either 54 or 55 AD. So this is a few years after Paul had planted the church. Paul had planted Corinth, and then he'd left Corinth after about a year and six months, maybe longer, and traveled to other cities. Now Paul is in Ephesus, quite a ways away, and he starts to hear rumors about the church in Corinth that are not good, He's hearing concerning news that though they were the Christian church in Corinth, they started to resemble and live just like Corinth and not like Christ. That they'd started to break down the barriers between the world and the church and started to resemble more of the world and less of the church. And so as Paul is hearing this news, Paul writes them a letter. And it's not the, the letter First Corinthians. We, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul has already written them a letter. So that means that 1 Corinthians is actually what? Second great job on the math, 2 Corinthians. And not that you care, but what we call Second Corinthians is actually Fourth Corinthians. So, first and third Corinthians have been lost to history. We don't know where they were, but Paul writes the first letter to them and he's basically trying to straighten them out. Hey guys, you guys are jumping the rails. Let me straighten you out. Well, they write a letter back to Paul saying, no, 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 here's, we don't know what the contents of the letter was, but our assumption is that that letter back to Paul was them giving a defense for their bad behavior. Let me tell you, Paul, why you shouldn't be worried, and let me tell you why we believe what we believe, and why we started to drift on these Christian beliefs and these doctrines. It's sort of like the feeling that we as pastors get when we see some of you post on social media. Like, we go ghost white, and we're like, I wish I did never see that. I don't want to know what you're thinking. I don't want, you know, don't post that. That scares us as pastors. That's sort of what happens with Paul. So Paul reads the letter, and he's like, oh my gosh, it's even worse than I thought. 1 Corinthians. He writes them this letter, and in between him writing them this letter, he gets news from people who were in the church that confirms, oh, oh, Paul, it's, it's not just as bad as you think. It's way worse. There's this going on and this going on and this going on. It's really, really bad. So 1 Corinthians is us sitting in on only one half of the conversation where there's already been dialogue back and forth, and they've been asking Paul in their letter all these questions, and Paul's going to be interacting with those questions as we go along in the letter. He'll quote them, now concerning this, or you said this in your letter, now concerning that, and he's going to be responding to those things in this letter of 1 Corinthians. Now, now what was going on to freak Paul out so much that he wrote this letter? What was happening? Let me just give you a few of the things. This isn't even all. There's probably more, but here are a few of the issues that were happening. The church was splintering into factions against one another and against the Apostle Paul. So there were groups of people that were rising up against one another, and then they were all rising up against Paul and saying, hey, thanks for helping us meet Jesus, but we don't need you anymore. We'll look at that next week. There was boasting in their spiritual superiority. They were really big on wisdom and really big on knowledge, and they were starting to define that as Corinthian culture defined that. So that was a big thing. They were boasting in their wisdom and superiority. They were celebrating a man's sexual relationship with most likely his stepmom. It could have even been his mother-in-law. We're not sure. He was suing, they were suing one another over trivial disputes, They were pursuing sexual abstinence within marriage and giving really bad reasons why. Or some other people were actually pursuing divorce so that they could attain spiritual superiority over their spouse. They were justifying the use of prostitutes. No big deal, just justifying the use of prostitutes. They were feasting at pagan temples and eating the sacrifices that were made there, all all in the name of grace. They were neglecting the poor members of the church and get this, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper? Like imagine, how how unhinged do you have to be to show up on a Sunday and you're like, oh, it's been hours since I've had my last drink and you're just slamming wine and getting hammered instead of partaking in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. They're believing that the gift, gift of tongues was most spiritually superior, that if you had that, you were kind of better than everybody else. They had chaotic worship services. Everyone was speaking in tongues without interpretation. Have you ever gone to that church? You went to that church once and you probably left early because it freaks you out. Everyone's praying in tongues. There's no interpretation. You're like, these people are crazy. It's because they are. And you're freaked out and you leave, right? That's what was happening in Corinth. Uh, Listen to this. Everybody was showing up with their own sermon. So imagine if it wasn't like me up here, but like, you're like, oh, I prepared one too today, and I prepared one too, and let's all give it together at the same time. No, thank you. That's chaotic. It's already hard enough for one of us to do it. Let's not have 50 of us try uh, they, they had their own version of teaching and doctrine, and it was just, everything was ridiculous on their Sunday gatherings. Some people in the church were getting baptized on behalf of the dead. It's a weird story why, but they essentially believed that the resurrection wasn't real and that Jesus basically had already ushered in the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God fully. The resurrection wasn't a thing, so we better, get, we better baptize people who have died. Let's, bat, let's baptize ourselves on their behalf. Really weird. And then finally, I've already alluded to this, many of them were denying that the resurrection of Jesus had already happened or the implications of that on our life. Just to say it plainly, this church is a hot mess. This church is a train wreck. Like, I know that all churches are messy. I know that there's no perfect church, but can we just agree, like, this is a different caliber of dysfunction right here. This is Jerry Springer Church. This is like the church gone wild, something has happened, this is really, really bad. And at the core of what was happening is that they had adopted the ways of Corinth and neglected the way, the way of Christ. Gordon Fee, again, he says, although they, they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. That is what this letter attempts to do. So with all of that background, with all of that insight, with all of that culture, let's now step in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, Sosthenes was not a co writer of this letter. Sosthenes was most likely, we think, Paul's secretary or the person that was the scribe. So imagine Paul like pacing in his office, you know, they said this in their letter, and so tell him this. And then they said, tell him that. And he's just kind of articulating the the contents. Sosthenes is the guy that's taking down the notes. He's writing the letter. At the very end of the letter, Paul's going to sign the letter with his own hand, which leads us to believe that Sosthenes was the scribe. Verse 2 To the church of God, That is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing that I want you to see it's the scandal of grace. You open this letter, and on page one, on chapter one, verse one, on the first word of verse one, it is dripping with the scandalous grace of God. Look at it again with me. Don't miss this. Paul, called to be, by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Do you remember who Paul was? Do you remember what Paul was doing just like 20 years or so before he writes this letter? Do you remember what was going on in Paul's life and where he was at? Paul was a persecutor of the church. The first time we meet him in Acts 8, he's standing over the dead body of Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church, approving of his murder. And then right after that, we, we read that he was still breathing threats and murder against the church. Paul in Acts 9 gathers letters from the high priest so that he can travel from city to city to grab people who are claiming to walk in the way of Jesus and throw them in jail and have them persecuted and have many of them killed. That's the Saul and the Paul that we meet. How in the world does he go from being persecutor of the church to being an apostle who is actually writing a letter to build the church up? The scandalous grace of God. I wish I had time to give you his full story and his bio but you know some of it. In Acts 9, he encounters Jesus. Jesus kicks him off of his horse while he's on his way to do damage to the church. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Jesus feels so tight, connected, and meshed with his church that when you hurt the church, you hurt Jesus himself. He says, why are you hurting me? And then eventually, long story short, he works in Paul's heart, and Paul goes from being Paul the persecutor to Paul the apostle. How? the scandalous grace of God. And I just want you to remember that as we go through this letter. I'm just making this point. I know it's obvious, but just remember that the author of this letter is a man who once killed Christians and now is writing to Christians for their joy and for their upbuilding and for their encouragement. Everything he says, he's saying is one who has experienced the grace of God himself. That is a big deal. And I think that's why Paul can go on to write to this church in the type of attitude and posture that he does. Notice the the shocking, scandalous way that he writes to them in verse four. This is crazy. Imagine all that's going on in the church and then hear these words. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way, You were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the letter that I would have written to the Corinthian church. I would bet money that this is not the way you would have written To the Corinthian church. My letter would have sounded like this Andrew, called to be an apostle by the will of God to the church in Corinth, stop now. You guys are jacked up. Repent, change. If you don't change, I will never come to you again. If you will change, I might consider coming to visit you in the winter. Until then, grace be with you. Amen. That would have been my letter. Button it up, send it off. I'm done. That church is a hot mess. I'm just going to like wash my hands of any association I have with it. And yet Paul, he ironically and interestingly takes every single thing that's frustrating about this church and he thanks God for it. Like, Let me just break it down for you. They're making a mockery of grace, literally using it as a license to sin. And yet in verse 4 he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you. They were puffed up with worldly wisdom and knowledge and had a very jacked up understanding of what wisdom and knowledge was. And yet in verse five, Paul says, in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. It was questionable if the gospel had ever really taken root in their lives. And yet Paul says in verse six, the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. They're misusing and abusing every spiritual gift. I would have written to them and be like, stop with the gifts. You guys are not allowed to be charismatic anymore. And yet in verse seven, Paul says, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are drifting into sinful immorality. If you had some of these Christians as friends, you would doubt if there was ever any real Christian in them at all. You would wonder like, I don't really know if they're a believer or not. Probably not. They don't seem to be followers of Jesus. And yet in verse eight, he says, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is happening here? Here's what's not happening. Paul is not being nice. Paul is not being kind. Paul is not being a coward. He's not saying, well, I don't want to say the hard thing for fear of offending them and fracturing the relationship. Read the rest of the letter. Paul will say plenty of hard things. He's going to say plenty of things that would make you and I, you know, kind of skip a beat or gasp a little bit. So he's not just being nice or kind. He's not being a coward. Here's what's happening. Paul is viewing this Corinthian church through the filter of the scandalous grace of God. Friends, you've got to get this. There's such a thing as upstairs theology and downstairs theology. And often you and I just live in downstairs theology. Downstairs theology, what I mean is what you feel about yourself and your lived experience as a Christian. It's the ways that you struggle. It's the ways that you give in to temptation. It's the ways that even after being a Christian for years and years and years, you're still embarrassed at the types of things that come out of your mouth or the behaviors that you exhibit or the the different addictions that you thought you'd be over by now or whatever it is. It's the place is in your story where you feel like you can't have any say of the grace of God. You can't belong to God because of these things that are downstairs. And yet there's also such a thing as upstairs. God is the one who called you. God is the one who forgave you. God is the one who sent his son to die on a cross in your place for your sins. He has forgiven you and clothed you. He has given you a different identity. The old you is gone. You are a new creation. You are loved. You are chosen. You are favored by God. That's what's actually true of you. Friends, you've got to remember that this grace is scandalous and that you're going, oh, I just never deserved to be loved. You didn't deserve to be loved, and that's the point. Before you were even born, he saw you, he knew you, and he loved you. He was for you. He sent his son to die for you. He has completely and radically changed your life by offering all of his grace and holding nothing back. That is your identity, and Paul leads with it. He says, hey, church, I know you're jacked up here, 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 here. I thank God for you because this is who you really are. This is who you really are. This is who you really are. This is scandalous grace. How can it be true? How can Paul say these things? That leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is not just the scandalous grace of God, but notice the source of this grace. Notice where this grace comes from. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul does not have his eyes fully fixed on the Corinthian church. He has his eyes fully fixed on the faithfulness of God. He's not looking at them and going, man, I'm really impressed with your behavior. He's looking at God and he's like, I am really pressed with, impressed with your faithfulness. I'm really blown away at your commitment." I'm really enamored with who you are and what you've done. Paul recognizes that the reason you can celebrate this church, the reason you can thank God for this church, the reason you can, you can actually love this church is because this church has experienced not faithfulness to God, but the faithfulness of God on their life. That changes everything. Friends, you got to remember, God is the initiator. He is the caller. He is the author. We are the initiated. We are the called. We are the ones that he's writing into his story. This is his deal, not ours. And even if you're here today, I feel this really strongly. Like there's some of you that are here today and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus or what you're supposed to do. Like you don't realize that you are in the best way possible. You are on the clock to receive the love and mercy of God. And you've never deserved it. It's not like because you're a good person and you've got the great story. God is faithful And he is calling you, you right now, as you are, you in this moment, he is calling you to be his. That changes everything. This is a grace-saturated, Jesus-focused letter. It's crazy to me that nine verses, Paul mentions the name of Jesus nine times. Let me give it to you. In verse one, Jesus is the one who called Paul to be an apostle. In verse two, Jesus is the one who made the church holy. In verse 3, Jesus is the giver of grace. In verse 4, Jesus is the means by which that grace was given in the first place. In verse 5, Jesus is the source of all riches. In verse 6, Jesus is the subject of Paul's preaching. In verse 7, Jesus is the one that we are eagerly waiting for. In verse 8, Jesus is the one that all of human history is pointing towards. In verse 9, Jesus is Christ our Lord, and the one that we are called into fellowship with. This is ultimately not a letter about the Corinthian church. This is a letter about Jesus and his scandalous grace and the fact that he takes people like Paul, who used to be murderers, and jacked up people like the Corinthians, and you and me, who were a hot mess in our own ways, and he loves us still. That's the point of this letter. And if you don't get that, the rest of what's happening in this letter is not gonna make sense. This is the scandalous grace of God that has its source in God himself. That leads me to the last thing I want you to see, which is the surgery of grace. See, the grace of God is scandalous, but it doesn't stop there. Notice what Paul says in verse two. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Did you notice the two places with which these Corinthian believers find themselves in. They're in Corinth and they're in Christ. And these two things are often at war with one another. These two things are often waging war with one another. These two things are often offering competing visions of the good life, disordered loves and ordered loves, a a way to live as a human being and a way to live as A Christian in the kingdom of God, they are in Corinth and they are in Christ. And currently, the struggle here is that they resemble so much more of Corinth than they do of Christ. And this is how you and I are also living that we are in Oklahoma and we're in Christ, we're in American culture but we're in Christ. We live in our cultural moment, but we're also ultimately at home in Christ himself. And those two things are often at war with one another. There's often a tension that we feel where we take on more of the identity, the loves, the vision of the good life that our culture offers us in this world, rather than the culture of what Christ is offering us in the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on to say something that you've got to understand if you're going to navigate your Christian journey between now and either your death or Jesus coming back. You've got to understand this. 1 Corinthians verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be what? Called to be saints. Sanctified, called to be saints. I love the way that the NIV puts it. The NIV says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and, notice, called to be his holy people. The word sanctified means to be set apart. And here's the whole idea that if you are a follower of Jesus, you really truly are set apart by God. You really truly, like you have been sanctified. It has happened. He has rescued you out of darkness and he has set you apart. Now be set apart. Now live holy lives. You really are this Now live this way. And this is so much of the New Testament, but it shows up over and over in this letter that Paul is gonna look at these Corinthians and he's gonna say, here's what's true of you. Here's what's true of you. Now act the way that you are. Live the way that you are. Here's who you are, now live the way that you are. He says it this way to him at one point in 1 Corinthians 5, verse seven. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Do you see his logic there? He's not saying, stop it. Like even when it comes to basic things like sleeping with prostitutes, Paul's not like, hey, good idea. You should maybe just stop doing that. Just consider not sleeping with prostitutes for a little bit. He doesn't even do that. He says, here's who you are, so act the way you are constantly. In fact, in chapter 1, he's going to give a treatment of the cross of Jesus. And in chapter 15, near the very end, he's going to give us a treatment of the resurrection of Jesus. And in between chapter 1 on the cross and chapter 15 on the resurrection, every single ethical command that Paul is going to give the church fits within this gospel framework. Here's who you are. Now become who you are. This is the Christian journey, and it's going to help you and I so much. So where do we go from here? Well, I want to close by just briefly giving you a few things that this letter is going to offer us. This letter is going to offer us a lot over the next few weeks and months, 40 weeks in total. But let me just today give you a couple of things that I think this letter is going to offer us as we journey our way through. The first is I think that this letter is going to give us a different vision of the church. A different vision of the church. One of the current trends among otherwise mature Christians that's becoming increasingly popular is to, as a Christian, talk about the church as if you're separate from the church and in a really hyper-negative way. So you might refer to it as the evangelical church, but that's a pejorative. Or you might refer to it as the church in America, but that's a pejorative. Or you might refer to it as the church, and it's a pejorative. And you are really, really aware of all the brokenness and all the imperfections in the church. And friends, the church is far from perfect. I've conceded that like, hey, I'm a pastor. That's not lost on me. I get a front row seat to the imperfections in the church and they're in me too. But it seems as though some of us have become enamored with making our sole job being focused on constantly pointing out all the ways that the church has failed. And yet what's so interesting, if there was ever a church that deserved that type of attitude, if there was ever a church that deserved that type of approach, it would be the Corinthian church. And yet Paul doesn't treat him that way. He doesn't take jabs at the church. Instead, he opens up his letter with, here's who you are. Here's the grace of God at work on you. I love that Paul doesn't start a podcast called The Rise and Fall of the Corinthian Church. He doesn't start a blog post. He doesn't get with all the apostles and he's like, hey, let's sit around and talk about all the jacked up things about this church. And oh, is your church jacked up too? What's all the, and yet some of us have forgotten that the role of the accuser of the brethren has already been taken by Satan himself. That job is filled. He doesn't need any help with that. And if you're a follower of Jesus, what if instead of you taking on the role of critic and constantly pointing the finger at the bride of Christ, what if instead you realize that you're a part of her too and she is first and foremost before she's anything, she's beautiful. She's beautiful. Is she a mess? Oh yeah, she's a, ha- she's a-, she's a-, she's a absolute train wreck in so many ways, but she's still Jesus' bride and he loves her and she's beautiful. Think twice before you take constant jabs at the church. What Paul does instead is he genuinely loves the church. He sincerely thanks God for this church. Can you do that? He sincerely, from the bottom of his heart, thanks God for the church. He views the church through a gospel lens, and it's because of those things that, listen, friends, he doesn't gloss over their issues. He speaks to them about them. The issue that's happening in our culture right now is that we speak about her as if I'm not her, not to her, to other people. He speaks to her, about her, and invites her into a very different way. I think that that's going to mess with us a little bit in a really good way. I hope it does. I hope it messes with your theology that the first nine verses sound the way they do, and we're talking about the Corinthian church. Amen? Okay, so maybe not some of Some of us are like, I'm not sure how I feel about that point. Well, I, I did my best. Okay, so number two, I think that this book is going to offer us, this letter is going to offer us more of Christ and less of the world. We are, if anything, guilty of doing what this church is doing. Which is not uh, separating ourselves from the world as much as being gobbled up by the world. That the philosophies of the world, the good life as defined by the world, the pleasures of the world, the vision that the world is offering us of how to be human, our sexuality, our gender, our understanding on marriage and singleness and relationships and money and sex and possessions, all of that is actually so much more influenced by our current cultural moment than it is by the way of Christ. In many ways, what Paul is doing for this church, you and I need today in desperate ways. We need Paul to say, here's how they were living as Corinth, not Christ, and here's how you're living as Oklahoma City people, Moore people, Norman people, uh, this cultural moment people, and not the way of Christ. That, this letter is going to talk about sex and sexual immorality and what to do with people who claim Jesus as Savior but refuse to submit to him as Lord. It's going to talk about uh, marriage and divorce and singleness. It's going to talk about gender roles. It's gonna talk about how we arrive at our identity. It's gonna talk about how we live in the world but not be of the world. It'll talk about how we disagree with other Christians in a way that isn't foolish. It's gonna talk about money and spiritual gifts and the Lord's Supper and church leadership and on and on and on. And that leads me to the last thing that I think this book is gonna offer us. It's an invitation to close the gap between our profession and what's actually real about us. It's an invitation to close the gap between upstairs theology and downstairs theology that as this letter exposes who we are, as this letter confronts who we are, it's gonna invite us into experiencing more of God's grace and more change. And so I just wanna ask you, over the next 10 months, if this is your church, if you're submitted to the leadership here, would you read and study this book? And as best as you can, with the grace of God's help, would you open up your heart to just say, Holy Spirit, come and change me however you wanna change me as we study this letter.